0: this is wheel bearings i'm dan roth and i'm sam abu al so we'll do a tight show this week we'll cover a couple of topics there's it's an announcement heavy uh time period we're covering here but uh we'll start with what we're driving and sam you are in the bmw 740e uh is it also not a driver's car like i found the 530 to be
2: it is even less of a driver's car than the 5 series um but you know the the 7 series you know is was never really meant to be as much of a driver's car as the smaller bmws uh you know it was always more the the luxury model you know going up against the mercedes and you know the the latest you know the last couple of generations have been that even more so um but you know that said You know, it doesn't mean, you know, it's not a a surprisingly high performance car. Um, And, you know, perhaps, you know, one of the world's most expensive economy cars.
0: (laughs) That's one way to look at it. It is a... um... It is a, a premium, premium economy car. What kind of economy are you getting out of it?
2: Well, um, yeah, it's actually gone now. So it's it's past tense. Uh, it went back yesterday. Um, and we'll talk about the, the next car next week. But um, yeah, it was a seven, the 740E, is the one I was driving. I was originally scheduled to get an Alpina B7, but unfortunately, that one had to go back um, about a week before it arrived in my garage. So they substituted a seven forty e which I had actually been hoping to drive for quite a long time,
0: yeah, but I mean that's not an even trade
2: <laughs> no, but um i mean it's, it's certainly not an entirely even trade, but uh as I said, you know it the seven forty e is is a variant that I have been wanting to try out for quite some time uh It has basically the same powertrain that was in the uh the x five uh plug in hybrid the x five e drive that I drove. Uh, some months back um and it's you know it's basically a very variations of this powertrain are what are in most of uh, bmw's plug-in hybrid models right now
0: and you know so i found that to be really good in the x5 e-drive
2: yeah it, it is it's it's an excellent powertrain uh you know it's uh the two liter turbo uh four cylinder with um 255 horsepower which is you know it's pretty good you know they haven't they haven't really toned it down in this application it's it's a pretty strong engine by itself uh, and then you know that's backed up with a 111 horsepower uh, electric motor that's sandwiched between the engine's flywheel and the, tra- the eight-speed automatic transmission and of course you know being an electric motor it you know produces its peak torque right from zero RPM, which in this case is 184 foot pounds of torque. So, you know, this thing's got plenty of grunt, uh, which, you know, for a, a car that weighs, you know, well in excess of two tons, uh, you know, it, it's still, you know, they officially rate the, they list the zero to 60 time as 5.1 seconds, which is pretty impressive for it's a car that's 42 miles per gallon.
0: Yeah, that's, well, so that's 184 pound feet of torque from the electric motor.
2: Right. 184 from the electric motor and then additional uh, combined whatever. yeah the combined total uh between the you know when you max out between the electric motor and the engine is comes to 369 right uh, so and you know it's a big broad flat torque curve so i mean you know if you've if you've ever driven a prius you know it is um shall we say uh, an unexciting experience to accelerate uh, this one is not
0: right. I didn't find that with the the drive powertrain. I, I thought it was. Um, it, it actually had a little bit of like it joie de vivre. If I'm going to use a French word or French words, but it just it felt good.
2: Yeah, you know, it's it's actually something you might expect in say a driver's car. Correct. Right. <laughs> hey. Uh-huh. <laughs> You know, and, and, you know, and this this combination of the engine and the electric drive is, is paired up with a 9.2 kilowatt hour lithium ion battery uh, that sits in the back uh, underneath the cargo floor in the trunk. So, it, you know, compromises the trunk space a bit. I think you're left with about 13 cubic feet. Uh, but, um, you know, that's enough to give it about, you know, 14, 15 miles of all electric driving. And, you know, as it turned out, even, you know, with a, you know, a couple of uh, highway trips, you know, to Dearborn to Detroit during the time I had this car, uh, you know, it, I still spent, you know, most of my urban time driving the car in electric only mode, which, you know, is probably why it got, you know, almost 43 miles per gallon, uh, overall for the week, which, you know, like I say, for a car, you know, this size, you know, it's 126 inch wheelbase, you know, so this is a 12 and a half foot or 10 and a half foot long wheelbase. Uh, you know, this is a massive car. And, you know, if you're riding in the back, you know, you can just stretch right out. This one didn't have, you know, executive style seating or anything with, you know, that reclines and had, you know, footrests that come up. But you still have, you know, a ton of space in the back of this thing. And, you know, it's, it's funny. Uh, uh, I don't know if you remember back around 2008 or 2009, um, Rolls Royce built a, a prototype, all electric um phantom that they took around and they showed to a bunch of customers and they showed it off at some auto shows and things like that and they opted not to build it and they said at the time that you know they felt that you know this wasn't suitable for for a rolls royce which i always thought was kind of kind of odd Uh, because you know i think at the you know as it was configured at the time you know it probably had something like 150 mile range if i recall correctly um and you know the Phantom, you know, is <laughs> very much not a driver's car. It's a chauffeur's sh- right. car. Right. You know, it, it's a car to be driven in. And so, you know, I mean, part of you know, why Rolls Royce has always given their cars, you know, names like Ghost and Phantom and Dawn, you know, is because they've always been really supremely quiet and refined. Um, you know, and it always struck me that an electric drivetrain in a car like that. Would actually be the perfect drivetrain for that kind of car.
0: Well, that's and, what they try to make their combustion engines feel like, anyway,
2: right? is you know, on yeah. motor. And and the and the thing is, um, it uh, you know, it, it's not like people tend to take long road trips in a car like the Phantom. You know, it's something that you know they go, you know, they get driven from the country house into the city or something like that. Uh, you know, or from the Hamptons into Manhattan. Uh, and get dropped off. You know, if they're taking long road trips, you know, the chauffeur drops them off at the, at the airport where they hop into their Gulfstream for the the long haul. You know, so it's not like you need a really long range in a car like the Phantom, you know, I think for most people uh, from, for the way most owners are going to use that type of car. So it always struck me that they opted not to do that, the electric drive version of that, but now, you know, with a new Phantom coming shortly, I think the the new Phantom is going to be unveiled, I think, uh, in ju- late July. Um, you know, this powertrain or perhaps a variant of it, you know, maybe with a, um, a six cylinder instead of the four cylinder would be an almost perfect combination for a car like the Phantom. Because, you know, you can drive around silently and zero emissions um, most of the time, you know, for you know, for a pretty good haul, and you know, in a car, car the size of the Phantom, you could even put a bigger battery in it, and, you know, get it up to 25 miles of electric range.
0: Well, and the, yeah, the Phantom has that like double hull construction anyway. Yeah. So there, you could conceivably use some of the fact that size and price is really not much of an object with that car. And, you know, almost go like a Tesla where you, you're you filling the floor with batteries or, you know, depending on how much BMW architecture, the next Phantom shares, you know, but you, you've got enough size where you're not dealing with a 13 cubic foot trunk in a $300,000 car. Like you, you, you can solve those problems with money. Oh, yeah,
2: <laughs> pretty, pretty easily. So uh, I, I just I. I, I think i've heard rumors that the there will be a plug-in hybrid variant of the next phantom and if they do some variation of this powertrain in their you know at least the electric drive part of it i think um, you know phantom owners will be very content with that you know and you know in in traditional uh rolls-royce style you know back in the days you know prior to when BMW took over the Rolls Royce brand, uh, you know, they never listed their, the power output of their engines. They were always listed as sim- simply as adequate, adequate. You know, That's what I strive go. for is adequacy. And, and this powertrain <laughs> would, would absolutely be, you know, more than adequate for a Phantom.
0: Yeah, no, I agree with that. And it's going to be so quiet. I mean, the electric cars, even the, the hybrids have to have the little, you know, sort of beeper noisemaker kind of things now, cause they're so quiet that, people don't hear them and they get hit by them. Yeah. Um, so I think it, it achieves that goal.
2: Yeah. So, you know, I mean, the, the big thing, you know, the, the, the you know, is the, the powertrain is excellent. You know, obviously with a car this size, you have to take some somewhat more care in maneuvering, maneuvering around tight spaces and parking lots. Um, I did have some issues trying to use the, the active park assist uh, in this one. For some reason, it seemed more finicky than in the five series when I tried it in that one um you know in terms of detecting the parking spaces i'm not sure what was going on there but you know overall you know it was it was fine you know uh you know extremely smooth comfortable ride uh you know no you know it 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 pretty much absorbed everything you know the roads around here could throw at it so uh it was it was a very content place to spend time and you know it would be a great road trip car um you know but certainly not you know not not the kind of car that, you know, say someone who is enamored with a, an M4 or an M2 uh, might want to opt for.
0: Yeah. And I so I took a little bit of abuse about that when I talked about the five series not being a, a driver's car, because I, I was talking specifically about my experience with the 530, which is sort of the least drivery of the uh, the five series range. If you want more of a driver's car you know jump up to like the 540 but the fact remains that uh the things that I didn't like about the 530 are still there in the 540 so it's maybe a little bit more powerful a little bit more sprightly but you still it's it's not going to do it and and that's from everything I've I've gleaned about that car um so it's not i mean the 7 is perfectly fine not being a driver's car it is just an enormous luxury car and it's it is what it's supposed to be what was the price on yours uh
2: just over a hundred thousand dollars well that's not too bad i mean i say that's not too bad because you know (laughs) know, for a car that gets you know near prius fuel economy um and you know will you know haul any wealthy person around you know in extreme comfort um perfectly adequate (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, I mean it's, it's it's a really nice car. Um yeah, and it has you know it has all you know most of the same characteristics you'll find in most current BMWs. You've got you know the latest generation iDrive which you know is much improved. Um it, it doesn't it still doesn't support Android Auto or or CarPlay although I think you can get CarPlay support as an option. BMW for some reason has decided they don't want to support Android Auto. Um so whatever. Um <laughs> but, um, and it also has the, the gesture control system, which, you know, is the same as what's in the five series, which, you know, as we talked about before is, is more of an experiment right now. It's a proof of concept right now, rather than anything truly useful. Um, but, you know, aside from that, you know, it's got all the, all the other features, you know, it's got a really nice adaptive cruise control and the the lane keeping system, the lane keeping system actually, um did not work as well as the one in the five series in terms of you know actually centering the car in the lane it was it was reasonably reliable in terms of detecting the lanes but it didn't it didn't really try to center the car in the lane
0: now is that because it's different like an older generation of technology yeah, or
2: it, yeah it's an older generation of the system uh so the the five series has an updated version of that and i would expect you know maybe in the 2018 model cell or you know maybe in 2018 or 2019 models they'll they'll update the system in the 7 series uh to the same level of functionality all right so what about you what are you driving
0: i am driving something that is more than perfectly adequate i've got a 2017 uh ford f250 super duty with Ah. with the fx4 package and four-wheel drive and the 6.7 liter power stroke diesel um,
2: sounds like the one I had a few weeks back,
0: and it's a regular cab. And it, wow. it this is a lot
2: of truck. Um, it is, you know, and it, you long bed. Yes, um, oh, even better. Could have used that when I had it.
0: Yeah, I'm gonna find some mulch to get. Like, <laughs> so the thing that I immediately go to is because of the way this truck is is uh, spec It reminds me of every truck I rode in at every sort of blue collar manual labor summer job I ever had while I was in college. You know, you like a tad bouncy. It's well, it's very stiff because of the FX4 um, suspension. And it's you know, it's just it's a it's a burly truck. But it, like, I think those are the things that actually endear it to me as well. Um, or endear me to it. I don't know how to use that phrase, uh, but it's you know, it's 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 not like a cowboy Cadillac. It's it looks fantastic. Uh, something about that short, you know, standard cab long bed kind of thing just makes it look burly um and it's definitely burly uh and it's it's really Big truck should be yeah exactly um and it's it's not even that expensive uh, i say that sort of realizing that i'm still talking about a roughly fifty thousand dollar truck um but it's you know I, I really do i like the the styling of the new super duties um they've gone to the aluminum uh construction as well and uh you know I think it might have been Gordon Plato who did this one too he did the f150 you mm-hmm. gets a uh, just a like great sort of classic Ford truck look to these um, which I you know I realized <laughs> we're talking about the way it looks versus like the actual work you can do uh, that, that's kind of because I have no doubt this truck is is going to be able to do heavy duty work uh, all of the big trucks in their heavy duty guys are really really capable this one is No different. It's the most updated and it's very well thought out. You know, it has the extra uh, stuff in the bed for tie downs and um, and it's got, mine has running boards and stuff, Uh, but it's, you know, they all have integrated trailer brakes. Now it's, you know, it's got a a stout hitch on it. This is a truck. Like I really just was like thinking I need to find somebody who has a car trailer that needs to be towed somewhere and just like take a day off work and go go tow it uh, because it's Drive around
2: your neighborhood and find some stumps to pull out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I've got some of my own. Um, you know, Ford owns the truck market to a large degree uh, for a variety of reasons, um, which I'm sure General Motors and and uh, Chrysler might argue with. But, uh, you know, this is I wasn't that keen on the older Uh, Super Duties, the trucks that this replaced, I just felt like they were really old, really long in the tooth, and they'd been updated a bunch, but they were still, sort of, they felt cheap. Um, They didn't appear to have that longevity. You see a lot of not-too-old trucks that just, they get beat up fast. Part of that is because of the way they're used, but part of it, to me, said, like, they start to rust and stuff pretty quick. Um, Aluminum construction should alleviate some of that, and uh, it should help with the fuel economy. I haven't really made this engine this 6.7 liter power stroke do any any hard work but it's getting 19 miles to the gallon
2: that's pretty good i think it's it ridiculous got at about uh 14 between 14 and 15 uh yeah with the one i had but it was uh it was a crew cab and i actually did you know use it to haul some haul lumber from my deck so
0: yeah and i'm going to uh i legitimately i'm going to get some mulch and maybe some uh some gravel or something too so uh I, I will use it as a truck and, and try to report back next week. But I'm actually really pleased that they put these in the fleet.
2: Uh, let, let me ask you a question. I mean, you know, you, you drove the, uh, the Silverado uh, 20, 2500 recently. Yeah. Uh, with the Duramax 6.6 in there. Which one do you prefer? What do you have a preference between these two trucks?
0: I like the Duramax better. And that was one of the things that I noticed was even though, you know, the power stroke, this is a new power stroke, right? Or significantly updated. It's
2: it's an updated one. Yeah. Um,
0: it feels
2: every few years.
0: It's definitely powerful. There's no doubt about that, but it also feels soft off the line, um, where the, uh, the new Duramax was a lot more responsive. Um, I don't know whether it's like turbo lag or, or what, uh, again to like it's not these are not back-to-back impressions so i just remember being very impressed with the the duramax where the older duramax was laggy and the new one isn't um they both of these engines start up real quick they're not super loud diesely uh but the the new duramax is is very refined i think it's it's got a little bit of an edge on this one
2: It's, it's also possible that uh part of that is um it may be related to transmissions too so they may be tuning it, you know, to not be quite as aggressive, you know, to maybe tone down the torque a little bit from the engine right off the line, you know, to reduce the strain on the transmission. I oh, mean, I, I don't know, I'm just speculating about, you know, what might be causing what you're what you're experiencing uh, or, you know, it could be could be the engine. I mean, both of them use variable, variable, ugh, variable geometry turbochargers now. Um, so, you know, they, they shouldn't really have much of a problem with turbo lag.
0: No, it's not, it's see that's, and I don't want to say lag cause it's, it's not lag like in the old way. It's just, it feels soft, you know? And, and part of that is maybe that I know there's that much, you know, so much there. Um, but for whatever reason it, it, you really got to toe into it to get it. That's probably partially by design. You know, so maybe it's just a calibration thing. Um, you know, if you're getting all the whatever 900 something pound feet of torque it has right at like two miles an hour, you're just going to light up the back tires and nobody's going to be happy. So even if they're not trying to save the transmission, you know, it's it's a calculated move to just make the thing pleasant and manageable to drive. So so maybe that's part of it. Maybe it's just calibration or, you know, even just gear ratios, you know, just
2: yeah, it could it could be a number of different factors. You have, um, have to look at the details on the, yeah. the gearing and everything to, to see.
0: And and you know, put a load on it and the 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 whole situation changes. You want that soft throttle response. Mm-hmm. So, um yeah, I I can't complain about this in any way and I had lots of complaints about the old uh the old super duty. Um you know, and if, I guess the interior You know, again, it's not I keep saying again a lot, but it's not the like cushy, cushy trucks. So. It has the rubber mats, it has the cloth seats, it's the seats are not as comfortable as the the, uh, GM trucks either. Um, The materials inside are they're a lot better than they were. I still don't think they're as good as uh, everybody else or maybe they're just as good as everybody else. Not, you know, really sort of like you'd expect a new truck from the company that claims the, the leader in the segment and plays with the numbers enough to make it <laughs> appear that way, uh, you'd expect a little bit extra, but um, we're getting down to real like picky details.
2: So uh, uh, since you have an FX um guessing, that's uh, an XLT trim. Mm-hmm. So you don't yeah. have the, the, all the, 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 shiny quite as much shiny chrome all over the grill and bumpers and everything
0: no it looks rugged that's i love that i love the way it looks it actually and too it looks like it has manual locking front hubs um which i thought was weird i haven't inspected so
2: uh, again i've only had it a couple pretty days. sure they don't actually have manual hubs yeah i was gonna say that's anything <laughs> but um i think i think it's just the the caps that they put on there you know kind of give that give it that look
0: yeah, I was like, "There's retro, and then there's just like, just masochism. Don't do that."
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that uh, certainly none of the the domestic um, big trucks have uh, manual hubs anymore. I'm not sure if there's anything uh, that's available overseas that still does, but
0: oh, I'm sure that sure there is in some market where there's you know
2: yeah, um, but it's some. Some inexpensive, I mean, you could probably get a version of the Toyota Hilux somewhere, you know, with manual locking hubs.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I just, I remember the ads.
2: you in, you know, in, in Southeast Asia or somewhere.
0: Um, I remember the ads in the 80s where you know, they were Chevy, Chevy ads. And the Chevy trucks had the automatic locking hubs and they made a big thing. And the ad had the guy in the Ford ready to get out and, and lock the hubs and the Chevy truck drives around him.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, a quick, quick story, you know, back to uh, the early nineties um, when I was working for Kelsey Hayes at the time and we were doing our winter testing in International Falls, Minnesota on a frozen Lake. And towards the end of the winter testing season, you know, you start to get the, it starts to, the ice starts to melt, you know, during most of the winter, the ice is about, you know, two and a half, three feet thick, but you start getting the, the ice melting near the shore first. And, um, one day we were, um, uh, it was like a, a Sunday afternoon, I think, you know, I was inside the lodge having some lunch and there's a big window that's overlooking the lake. And one of my coworkers had been out on the ice doing testing with, it was actually with a Ford, uh, with a Ford pickup and, um, it had manual locking hubs on it and, uh, he had been doing two-wheel drive testing, you know, because we we did all our ABS testing with two-wheel drive and in four-wheel drive and everything else. He had been running in two-wheel drive and he was coming back, um, coming back onto shore, and around near, at the edge, you know, it started, you know, it was getting slushy and and wet, and he got into that and got stuck. <laughs> and still in, in two-wheel drive. And, you know, because it had manual hubs on there, we were sitting there eating lunch, watching him climb out through the window of the truck onto the hood, laying across the hood, reaching down, trying to reach down and lock the hubs while he was laying across the hood of this truck. It was hysterical. (laughs) You can't do that on this truck. It's so tall. Yeah. you 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 wouldn't be able to reach it unless, you know, you had gorilla arms. But Yeah. Um, well,
0: I, I mean, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that they make trucks like this. This is a nice rugged truck. Uh, it's, it's a truck that, uh, just brings me back to summers of my youth when I didn't have rotator cuff injuries. Um, so anyway, let's move on to some news this week. Uh, big, big news that that is sort of like the news gift that keeps on giving. And we talked about it last week. We talked about Tesla and we said like, ah, no, they won't fire Travis. And then Travis quit. Number. I, yeah, I'm sorry. Uber. Let <laughs> me see what I did there.
2: I uh, had an executive change this week, too, but yeah, that, that's a relatively more minor one.
0: Yeah. Well, and I was also like right before we jumped on the, the cast, I also saw your, your tweet from the other day where you know, Tesla should just buy Uber for stock. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Uber. I'm sorry. Uber. Uh, we said last week, Travis wasn't going to leave or be forced out. And then he was forced out.
2: Yeah, um, amazingly enough, the the board actually decided to stand up to Travis. Even though Travis Kalanick, the, the now ex CEO and, and co founder of Uber, you know, has uh, these super voting shares that basically give him a majority of the votes on the board, um, which made it theoretically impossible for the board to actually fire him. There was enough pressure coming. Uh, from most of the major uh, the other major investors, uh, the VCs that have put money into uh, uh, into Uber over the last several years. And they basically said, you've got to go. Um, and so yesterday he or the day before sometime within the last couple of days, he announced that he was resigning. And I, you know, I kind of figured that eventually he probably would, that, you know, he, he probably would not come back from his leave. Uh, but I didn't expect it to happen quite this quickly. Um, uh, and I, it's possible that it might be related to some other news that also came out today, uh, I guess, in a filing in the, uh, the, the Waymo uh, lawsuit. Um, the Uber lawyers actually acknowledged that Kalanick knew when they bought auto and hired Anthony Lewandowski that Lewandowski had taken these documents from from uh, from Waymo.
0: Of course he did.
2: Yeah, um, you know, so they acknowledge that, and in, in the 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 filings, they um, they say that uh, Uber said that, or that Kalinak had told Lewandowski um, after Lewandowski acknowledged he had the documents. Kalinak had told him you have to take, you have to give them back. You can't use this stuff. You know, that's that's Uber's claim. I'm skeptical. You know, but uh, you know, I, I find it hard to believe that given kalanick and uber's history over the last seven years that he wouldn't want to take advantage of that opportunity but uh you know if if uh you know either way it looks very bad on kalanick and uber so i wouldn't be surprised if that was part of what finally got the the board to show some spine and tell kalanick that he's got to leave
0: it was all ariana huffington Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Okay. Let's not do that to her for now. Um, But (sighs) yeah, I mean, so there's a lot of people that are saying this, this doesn't end Uber's problems. Uber is still going down.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, they, I think I believe they still have some very fundamental problems with their business model. And, you know, I mean, and that's not exclusive to Uber. That's, you know, all of the the ride hailing companies have some fundamental issues with their their business models. And they, you know, they are going to have a tough time surviving, you know, if they do. Um, So, you know, there's regardless of who ends up being the new CEO of Uber, um, it's going to be a real challenge to ever reach profitability.
0: Yeah, well, it's not even profitability they're looking for, though. Now I see that uh I see this move as the board protecting value for the eventual sale. Yes. So Absolutely. Uh, you know they're just looking at it going you're, you're you're killing our value here and we want to cash out of this thing at some point so you've got to go and it's not you know Well
2: you know the problem is right now the value is still I think too high for anybody to come in and want to buy it you know at you know, even even if the value has declined, which you know um, some reports have said that you know, be, because you know Uber is not public yet, so you can't just go and buy Uber shares. Um, but there is a secondary market for privately held companies like this, you know, where you can have private sales of the shares. And uh, I've seen there were some reports um, a month or so ago that Uber's valuation, you know, in these secondary market sales. Had actually dropped so that you know the 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 share price that people were getting um, was at a valuation of down to almost fifty billion, which is I mean it's still ridiculously <laughs> right. high. Down to but, fifty billion, <laughs> but you know com- considering that you know at their last fundraising round uh, last year it was they had a valuation of I think sixty five billion. You know that's that's a pretty significant drop. You know in less than a year uh, for this company that is still. Uh, far and away, the biggest in that segment.
0: Well, yeah, but uh, you know, at the end of the day, too, the issue really is that Uber makes software, and, and so we, and I keep we keep coming back to that. Um, you know, do you think that because uh, investors are pressured, uh, Travis to step down, and they're they're trying to, they're trying to sort of recenter this business and 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 make it work? Um, do you think that? It, it dooms some of the like self-driving car and partnership uh, uh, initiatives or do you think those actually get on track and become more viable now
2: uh you know I don't know I, um i I don't you know their their self-driving car their autonomous car program you know has been troubled for a long time anyway um you know and we've seen we've seen, I think we've seen more issues with their cars you know, doing inappropriate things on the road than with any of the other companies, vehicles that we've seen, Um, you know, in terms of running red lights, getting into accidents, that sort of thing. So, you know, I don't think that their, their autonomous technology is particularly strong. Um, You know, and if they, if they did get much from, um, from the stuff that uh, uh, Lewandowski brought from Waymo, um, apparently it hasn't benefited them all that much. So, uh, you know, I don't think that they have much to offer on the autonomous uh, driving side. And, you know, like you said, they're a software company and it's software that's not really all that hard to replicate, you know, for it's not that hard for any for any other companies to do the same thing. And, you know, other companies have popped up to do the same thing. Right. Lyft for, well, and, and Lyft is, uh,
0: yeah, Lyft is very much, um, sort of stepping into the fray here while Uber goes through its convulsions. Uh, they're, they're making a lot of moves to improve their business.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, Lyft has a, um, a much friendlier public image as a company than Uber ever has. Um, but that said, you know, they're, they're far from perfect either. Um, you know, I mean they've they've had some issues of their own and you know one of their their big investors uh happens to be a guy named Peter Thiel, um, who, you know, is in terms of personality probably not all that different from uh from Mr. Kalanick, uh he's, in, in a he's lot of respects. Worse. <laughs> in some ways, yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm not gonna say that because you know I don't want him suing us into oblivion. But
0: uh that's true. Okay. So the things I have read in the propaganda websites, um, Say that he's not doing nice things. Yeah, we're not even on their their radar. He's, no, he, what I hope is not. it? SCL and Cambridge Analytica and all those. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, that's another um, podcast. Okay. But so I mean, we we talked about this a little bit in our Slack channel uh, yesterday. Was at a certain point, this whole sector seems like it's it's either going to get absorbed into something larger or uh, it's something's gonna happen like the the future is muddy for all of these companies just because they're they're really what they're doing is they're reinventing public transportation um and turning it into sort of like public transportation for the wealthy <laughs> um or the relatively wealthy in an on demand way uh while stuff like you know taxis and buses and you know other forms of sort of public infrastructure have to serve everybody uber and other ride sharing services you know you need a smartphone and a credit card so unbanked people miss out um and they lose money on every ride so while they're sitting on 50 something billion dollars of valuation they're not making any profit um that can only go on for so long and while the system is great to use you uh, When do we wind up going like, hey, you know what, like, this is this is fun if we just want to keep giving people rides that are subsidized by somebody's investor money. Uh, What's the end game?
2: Um, You know, I I think the the end game is um, is almost certainly services that are operated by the car makers that are building autonomous vehicles. Um, That you're leasing
0: or, you know, somebody's paying a monthly fee for that so that the car like the service isn't free.
2: Right. This, well, the service isn't going to be free, you know. So, I mean, companies like Uber and Lyft, you know, I, I suspend DD and, you know, these other independent um, ride hailing companies, I think, will end up either going away or being absorbed into car makers. And the car makers will be the run, the ones that run these services so they're not paying a share of the revenues to some other middleman. And um, so, you know, and they'll, they'll 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 be offering they'll have to offer a variety of different types of of autonomous mobility services at different kinds of price points, you know, with different degrees of service. So, you know, you're going to see everything from, you know um, more luxury oriented services, uh, you know, that I've written about, um, you know, where you have a, a premium experience, you know, maybe guaranteed shorter wait times for a vehicle or, you know, vehicle be there when, when you, you know, you can request it ahead of time. It'll be there when you want it. That sort of thing. Uh, different kinds of amenities um, and then more affordable services, uh, you know, some of which may even have to be you know, cash-based services as opposed to, uh, you know, paying with a credit card, you know, because like, as you mentioned, you know, a lot of people, especially in urban areas that are unbanked or underbanked, you know, they, they don't have enough money to afford to have a checking account and a credit card or a debit card. Uh, and so they, you know, they operate in a, in a cash society. And, you know, I mean, here in Detroit, that's particularly a problem. You know, it's estimated that somewhere between 30 and 40 percent of residents of Detroit are underbanked. Um, and so, you know, they, they rely on check cashing services, you know, when they get their paycheck, you know, they go to these check cashing shops and, you know, they get cash out and, and do everything with cash. Um, and so, you know, these services are going to have to find a way to adapt to deal with that. And, it, you know, it's not just uh, here in the U.S., but in, in a lot of other countries, especially you know places like India, for example, you know, where a large proportion of the population, you know, doesn't have access to, to plastic. Uh, so we've got to find ways to evolve that. And um, so you're going to have a range of different services and, you know, cities are going to have to deal with these companies and make sure that the services uh, integrate with um, with trans uh, mass transit uh, systems, you know, so that you have a combination, you have this ecosystem of a variety of different types of services, you know, that includes small individual vehicles, uh, maybe larger luxury vehicles, some mid middle-sized vans, uh, you know, so, I mean, the sort of thing that Waymo is trying to do with the Pacificas and what Ford is doing with their chariot service with 15 passenger transit vans. you know, so you're going to have this, this range of different types of vehicles and different different uh, offerings, uh, at different price points, um, and that are suited to the needs of a particular community.
0: Yeah. I just love the, and I see, I've seen this tweet go around. Um, but I, I just love the the quote. It's like, you know, every couple of weeks, one of these tech guys reinvents the city bus.
2: <laughs> yeah. pretty much. <laughs> city bus uh, or the taxi.
0: Yeah. We just like, it's completely accurate. You know, it's like, well, if you know, ride sharing and you could have it pick up and drop off at, you know, Uh, predetermined locations on a schedule (laughs) That's like great thanks for the subway
2: yeah well you know i mean an example is just yesterday uh here in ann arbor uh university of michigan at uh, m city the the autonomous and connected um research facility they have here uh they announced that they're partnering with navia uh, which is a french company that makes these um autonomous shuttles autonomous electric shuttles uh, and it's pretty similar in concept to what local motors is doing with their Ollie. And there's a couple of other companies doing similar types of things uh, where, you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty bare bones vehicle, but it's autonomous, you know, uses LIDAR and other sensors to, to navigate around. Uh, and it's electric and they're going to uh, launch a service uh, this fall uh, with the, the 2017 school year. When the students come back on the uh, North campus here at, at University of Michigan uh, with two of these Navia shuttles uh, operating uh, between parts of the, uh, the North campus, you know, it's about about a mile apart, you know, so it's about a two mile route um, running every 10 minutes. And the idea initially is, you know, the rides are going to be free. Um, There will be someone on the vehicle, you know, that's monitoring things, you know, just to keep an eye on the vehicle and, and make sure that everything's running correctly, but also, Um, you know, they'll have cameras on the inside and the outside of the vehicle to see how people are using these vehicles, how pedestrians and other motorists are interacting with them. Um, and, uh, it's going to be fascinating to watch, you know, some of these, they've already got some of these vehicles running in, in other cities around the world. There's some, you know, they started last year, uh, in Nice, France, and they're in a couple of other cities as well. I think there's some in Singapore, um, so this will be the first deployment here in the U S of, uh, of these types of vehicles. You know, so this is, you know, kind of the, the middle, you know, the, the midsize, uh, type of vehicle, uh, you know, so the, the Navia is not that big. Um, it's about, uh, I guess about 12 feet long, 10, uh, yeah, yeah, about 12 feet long holds about, uh, uh, 12 or 15 people. And, um, you know, just navigates its way around the campus
0: yeah and i mean the way that that's we're gonna see more of those kind of places where it fits mm-hmm. and uh i'm gonna stop uh sounding like an alarmist now and we can we can just move on and, and then say know, that definitely
2: they, you know we, we gotta keep you know ringing the alarm bells because there's still lots of things to to resolve there's still a lot of problems to resolve before you know i mean one, one of the issues you know i mean with with the navia vehicles this will be the first time that they're um, running in service, um, you know, for example, in winter weather, you know, come, come, uh, the end of the year, you know, they're going to be encountering snow and, you know, they, they actually have, they've, they've had one that they've been doing some testing with since December, uh, here. Uh, so they did get some experience driving in winter, uh, last year, uh, even though it was a fairly mild winter, but, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how, how they work, you know, with passengers, you know, and out on the public roads instead of on the test track.
0: Yeah, well, and like part of it is the uh, autonomous issue, and like they're going to have to choose, you know, some of the, if they're using hybrids, like you're going to have to choose. F- fuel economy or you know actual operation in those conditions and stuff like it's all going to be a trade-off and you've got to look at the cost of like overall operating that fleet like what do your costs do in the winter when it's colder you've got to run the heat use more fuel you need to be properly equipped so like i'm i'm really looking forward to actually uh, these problems seeing how they get solved and solved in maybe a clever manner that you wouldn't uh wouldn't initially consider
2: Right. Um, so it's, you know, it's important that they're doing these tests so they can learn these these lessons and figure out how they have to adapt these vehicles. And, and you know, that's the other thing with um, autonomous mobility vehicles is they're going to they're going to have to be constructed in a whole different way. But that's a topic we can get into another day.
0: All right. Well, but speaking of construction, that's a good segue uh, to our next and last topic this week, uh, which is the, uh, the IQS scores, which um, I I will plead ignorance i know what they are it's the jd power initial quality scores um which uh basically says you know these cars have x amount of defects per 100 100? yeah per 100 vehicles um for this model year uh so it's it's sort of a a running metric about how well they wind up on dealer lots right
2: right so um you know what the, the IQS survey, the initial quality study is something they've been doing since 1987, and they survey owners um, after the first 90 days of ownership. Uh, so, you know, they're looking for the kinds of problems that people are encountering, you know, right off the bat, you know, right after they take delivery in those first three months. And what's interesting, you know, if you if you look at the results over the last, uh, what I guess, 30 years now, yeah, this, this is the 30th year that they've been doing this the The nature of the kinds of problems that people are encountering has changed. You know, first of all, I mean, the the number of problems per hundred vehicles has has dropped significantly uh, since they first started doing it. But the nature of the problems has changed as well. You know, and it's you know it used to be a lot of you know fit and finish and reliability and you know uh, uh, those sorts of problems. You know, things that didn't work or were you know physically broken. And now more often it's not as much about um, those kinds of issues, as it is about um, design related issues and how how humans, inter- you know, how the drivers interact with these vehicles. Um, you know, so the the biggest uh, grouping of problems that they're discovering now are in the infotainment and technology area.
0: Right. So me- mechan- the mechanical stuff. And this was actually one of the points I made about that 530 again was the mechanical stuff seems like they've got it down. Um, it's the, the electronics and the, the systems, the driver, you know, the human machine interface that's causing all the trouble.
2: Yeah. Um, you know, so, you know, looking at, you know, top 10 problems for, for 2017 cars, um, you know, number 10 cup holders, you know, people complaining about the cup holders. You well,
0: know, I mean, come on,
2: you know, um, center console storage, uh, materials scuff or soil easily paint imperfections you know so i mean that's you know that's now you're starting to get into a real you know about a more a, more of a, a manufacturing quality issue than right. a design like, issue
0: the, the whole, like the first couple make me wonder like did you did you sit in the car did you look at the car did you buy the car with your eyes closed uh, i
2: think i think in a lot of cases <laughs> uh the, the answer to those questions uh except for the last one is is no
0: <laughs> and the last answer is yes yeah i mean like those are things you can easily find out um yeah, but, but the, the the paint quality thing is like that is an issue
2: yeah but you know the the top two problems by a pretty wide margin you know and and the thing is you know those were you know the all those uh you know seven eight nine ten you know they were all are you know up up through number three you know from from number three to number ten they ranged from 2.6 problems per 100 vehicles to 1.6 problems per 100 vehicles. So, you know, less than 3% of owners, you know, experience those problems.
0: And those 3% are just whiny.
2: Yeah. Um, <laughs> but the, the top two problems by a wide margin. Number one, built-in voice recognition frequently doesn't recognize or misinterprets commands. Number two, built-in Bluetooth mobile uh, connection, connectivity, uh, frequent pairing and connectivity issues. Yep. 2.8 and 5 uh, problems per 100 vehicles
0: So you know, I drive a lot of cars every year And so do you Yep. And two of the biggest problems I have Are that the damn thing won't connect to my phone <laughs> um, And the, the, uh, the I don't use the VR that much But when I do, it's just like I wind up saying like no to it And exit and quit Or whatever, like I try to get it to stop because it doesn't work all that well. Some of it actually works better than you'd think now, because it's you know they're they're moving towards cloud connected systems where if it has a solid you know four G connection, it'll it'll decipher. Um, and the the voice recognition is just better. Um, Nissan's system is old now, but it's always been like surprisingly friendly to use. Um, but yeah, I, those are those are things that they're still trying to solve. Those those are not going to be easy to fix.
2: Yeah. And, you know, the the thing to keep in mind, you know, again, especially with the voice, the voice recognition in particular, um, you know, for several years now, there's there's been this pattern where if you look at um, the IQS uh, results, voice recognition has been one of the top issues that people complain about in those first three months of of ownership. But then it, when you look at the long term durability study that J.D. Power also does, which is covers three years of ownership, um voice recognition tends to drop down to the bottom. And I think, I think what's happening there is, you know, when people first have the car, they're having issues with, with the system, Uh, you know, just getting used to the system, trying to figure out the syntax of what the vehicle, how to talk to the vehicle, what commands it knows what it doesn't know. Um, And then, you know, over time, they eventually either just give up, which I think is probably the case, you know, for in, in most cases, or, you know, they'll adapt to it. You know, they figure out, okay, those, these are the commands that the system knows reliably and, and can recognize reliably and people use those. So in either case, the reported pro- number of problems is going to decline over time. But you're, you're right about, uh, you know, these, uh, these so-called hybrid systems, you know, that combine uh, the embedded capability in the vehicle for when you don't have a, a connection to the cloud and then also cloud capability um, that sends your voice command up to a data center, does the recognition and um, parsing of the syntax, understanding, you know, trying to, you know, there's two, there's two components to this. One, you've got to figure out what are each of the individual words a person is saying. And then what does that sequence of words mean together? You know? Um, and that's, that second part is actually the much harder part of it. Trying to trying to understand what seat what a particular sequence of words means. Um, and, that's where most voice recognition systems struggle. And so um, they're getting better at that. Um, You know, and as you said, you know, some of these systems are now cloud connected. um, And so they, they have access to a lot more powerful computing to do that recognition. And so it's coming back more reliable, but um, it's, it's still going to be a problem for a while, I think.
0: Yeah. Well, and some of the systems too, they're now getting natural language recognition and uh, it'll, it'll get better, but for me, as a as a user too, like I just wind up giving up, which I suppose that a lot a lot of people do, because our Jeep has voice of recognition. Um, it's just not it's not worth it, you know. Like it it winds up not saving you any time or, or energy. Uh, it is handy when you're trying to do something and you're driving. Uh, like if you're trying to add a a location or something to the nav system. And the screen is locked out. You can get at it from the VR. You just have to be patient. And it's still distracting because you're talking to the machine. Uh, so it has its place, I guess. It's another way to actually put data into the system. Um, it, that's probably the area that, that infotainment lacks, I think, the most is, is these voice recognition systems. And it's probably because it's, it's the most difficult or one of the most difficult challenges to overcome.
2: It, it, it absolutely is one of the toughest challenges to deal with, but overall, you know, the industry as a whole is definitely making progress. I mean, this year, the overall average, uh, the, the overall industry average was 97 problems per hundred vehicles. So less than one problem per vehicle was the industry average. And for the second year in a row, Kia came out number one in the, in the overall rankings.
0: Yeah. And Ford is the, uh, the top full line automaker, right?
2: Yeah. Ford jumped from 11th last year to fourth, uh, this year. And then Uh, Chevrolet. Yeah. Chevrolet is, uh, well, Chevrolet was, uh, they were at sixth, uh, last year and this year. Uh, and they were tied this year with BMW at 88, uh, problems per hundred vehicles. Um, Genesis was number two behind Kia. Uh, they weren't ranked last year because they weren't a separate brand. They were part of Hyundai, uh, but. Hyundai dropped from 3rd to 6th um even though their total uh score uh stayed the same but they're uh, or actually got better uh yeah so they they went from 90 or 92 to 88 problems per, per 100 vehicles but everybody else got a little a bunch of other companies got a little bit better a little faster so
0: so that um, that that number that number 2 position for genesis though seems a little like that's a little bit like lies, damn lies, and statistics, right? Because they make what,
2: two cars, three cars? Two, yeah, uh, two right now.
0: Right. So you've got a small group of cars to uh, concentrate on and to have problems. So it naturally follows that if you're not making that many cars, there's just not that many problems per hundred to have. Right. Unless you're making completely terrible cars versus Uh, like,
2: although keep in mind, you know, that they are premium cars, premium luxury cars with a lot of features in them. Right. And a lot more things to potentially go wrong.
0: That's true. And they are impressively good. I will give give Genesis that Uh, this current generation of Genesis cars is is good, but they're just not you know, there's not the vast amount. They're not selling two hundred and fifty thousand of a single model like, say, Ford does with the Fusion. Plus, you know pickup trucks plus compacts, you know, like there's just a lot more cars to be reported on problems per 100 versus, uh, you know, Genesis that sells, uh, what do they sell? 10,000 cars?
2: Yeah, if that, yeah. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, and one of them, you know, the G80, you know, has been around, you know, it's, it's in its third year now, you know, so they've had time to sort everything out and make sure that it's all working. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's certainly, you know, <laughs> you, you can't, complained you know about having only 77 problems per hundred no no absolutely you're right i mean it 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 is sort of you know not it's it's a it's a in some respects it's an easier problem than it is for ford or ram or chevrolet you know to achieve you know scores that high and you know all of them did really well this year you know um ram in particular jumped from 19th last year to fourth this year they tied with ford yeah um And, uh, Chevrolet is just behind that.
0: So I think like the real thing that impresses me is, is both Ford and Chevrolet being so high on that list, uh, because they make everything and they make a lot of everything. Everybody else up there, they make a little bit of something. Um, so again, like just the, the sheer volume, like Ford, Ford is ahead of BMW Uh, and, and IQS is a little bit of like, that's, the real the more the sort of more important numbers is that three year or seven year quality study um, for for durability or reliability. I forget what they call it. Uh, the, but the so IQS the
2: durability study, yeah,
0: yeah. The, the IQS tells you like these guys have you know they're paying attention to quality control on the new stuff. You can be reasonably assured that it's going to work as advertised when you buy it off the lot with the IQS. It doesn't tell you much more than that,
2: right? Um, you know, and there's also a few other interesting uh, data points from this uh, from this study this year um, for the second year in a row. The domestic brands actually outperformed the import brands and non-premium brands did better than premium brands on average. Yeah. So, I mean,
0: I don't I don't know what that really like. I don't know how to unpack that other than to say, like, it seems like they've got their act together. <laughs>
2: yeah, they're, they're, they're certainly trending in the right direction. Um, and, you know, and, and overall, uh, between European, Japanese, domestic and Korean, the the two Korean brands or three Korean brands now, I guess, with Genesis, um, you know, outperformed everybody by a pretty good margin. Um, you know, the the Europeans were at one hundred and two. Um, the Japanese at 101, the domestics at 93, and the Koreans at 81.
0: Yeah. Uh, it underscores the idea that it's tough to buy a bad car these days.
2: Yeah. Um, except for um, except for one particular brand, uh, which declined to share any of its user data. Uh, Mitsubishi? Uh, no. Uh, no. It, no. No, Tesla. Tesla. Oh, well, screw them. They- <laughs> they're, they're the only ones that declined to share data with J.D. Power.
0: I mean, Tesla is this beautifully designed uh, product that like they're 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 quickly coming to the point where they're going to get their clock really cleaned by a major automaker.
2: And and with that, maybe we should jump into uh, listener questions.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we'll just leave that as a prediction. Uh, Dan says stuff that may or may not be true.
2: Um, Well, the the first listener question uh, we've got is from our friend Jonathan Brown, uh, who asks uh, Tesla Model 3 for winter driving with snow. Do we need to wait for all wheel drive? Uh, And I think this is related to the fact that, um, you know, they Tesla has said that, the initial batches of model threes, you know, when when they, when the car launches uh, later this year, maybe presumably um, (laughs) eventually (laughs) it it will be uh, basically just one configuration available. The only options that owners will have to choose from is color and wheel design. Um, Everything else will be one standard set of, of uh, equipment on there. And part of that is rear wheel drive only. So um, at some point, Uh, you know they have said that you know at some point they will offer a dual motor all-wheel drive version probably later in 2018 i would guess Uh, but to jonathan's question about uh, uh, rear wheel drive you know rear wheel drive versus all-wheel drive uh, i think you know the same answer applies here as to any car regardless of propulsion system winter tires
0: yeah and i think it actually applies more so here because you've got a lot of good low weight Mm -hmm. in in this uh, you've got a lot of good weight down low um which will improve your traction with winter tires the thing to be careful about is when you do start to slide it will also tend to accelerate because yeah. <laughs> it's heavy
2: yeah um, and yeah you know, the uh you know in, in the case of um you know the model 3 um and the same thing applies to the S and the X you know because they're uh electric you've also got you know a lot of uh low end torque right off the line so you know, I think you know. Presumably, the uh, the traction control should be tuned to deal with that uh, and keep the the power delivery to a minimum uh, when it detects that wheel slip. But still, you know that that is something you might want to to uh, to watch out for. But in general, you know, regardless of, of what kind of powertrain you've got, you know, a good set of winter tires um, in snow uh, will overcome a lot, <laughs> regardless yeah. of which wheels are doing the driving. I mean, yeah, I remember, you know. Years ago, you know, when I had my my first Mustang, uh, that one had no traction control on it, no ABS. And my wife's car was a front wheel drive Mercury Sable. I had a V eight Mustang, and I put winter tires on on my car, um, you know, at Thanksgiving and took them off in the spring. And you know, it got better traction than hers did with all season tires and front wheel yep. drive.
0: And that's exactly what I do. I put the tires on Thanksgiving, take them off a of tax day. Um, and the, the rear wheel drive cars in the winter with with winter tires are are fantastic. Um, and I, I actually I tend to prefer the way you can rotate them a little bit <laughs> um, <laughs> where front wheel drive car tends to just sort of understeer off the road. But winter tires solves a lot of
2: ills. Oh, yeah, absolutely. All right. Just just put some good winter tires on and you're you're good to go uh let's see also on facebook from mark reynolds uh he's in the market for a new car and seems like uh, three requirements are mutually exclusive luxury uh uh, heated leather seats sunroof non uh non-german and a manual transmission and he's also on the larger size so i don't feel comfortable in a centra turbo or a focus st Uh,
0: what about a cts um oh can you get the manual in the cts or is it only ats
2: uh i think it's only the ats now
0: damn that just that blows my theory out of the water uh you might still i think you you should should try get in the ctsv yeah Uh, that's not what i was going for (laughs)
2: yeah um Uh, let's see uh you keep talking for hmm. a minute while i look this up well let me
0: think let me think of what else has a manual transmission uh do you you gonna be able to get it in a 3 series or an audi or a
2: german uh, he doesn't want a german car oh not
0: german See, that's the problem. Um, not German. Um,
2: you know, well, something, hmm. to, something to consider, uh, you know, is.
0: Oh, Chevrolet you know, SS. You know, hmm.
2: Done. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah it's, done. it's not available anymore.
0: You can buy it.
2: <laughs> Use. Yeah, you might be. Yeah, you'd have to look, look long and hard to find one, I think. Yeah. Um, but he said, you know, he's looking for heated leather seats and a sunroof. Um, you know, so those are luxury features. He doesn't necessarily say a luxury car. Uh, so in that case, you know, if. You know, if he's looking for those features, um, Focus. You, know, you can get those in a Honda Accord.
0: Uh, yeah. The Accord Sport, right? It has the manual.
2: Yeah. You um, if manual you want it in like an Accord.
0: Yeah. Manual transmission Accord Sport in like one color.
2: Yeah. Or, well, you know, and actually on the 2017 models, the 2018s are coming soon. But on the 17s, you can actually get um, a V6 Accord with a manual transmission still. Really? Yes. Wow. Uh, I think in the, in the coupe, I believe. Uh, I don't know if you can still get the V6 manual in the sedan, but you can definitely get it in the coupe.
0: So just to sort of set your expectations too, like the V6 manual Accord coupe is like that. That's it's maybe not Mustang fast now, but that's like S197 Mustang GT fast. It, that's a quick car.
2: It's it's an under six seconds, 0 to 60 car.
0: Yeah, it feels it it feels sprightly, shall we say. Yeah. Um I'm I was also thinking like, okay, not German but Volvo. Can you still get like an S um, sixty with a manual?
2: I think you can get an S sixty, but uh you know, he's talking he needs he needs some room.
0: Yeah, it's not uh, it's a tight so car. The
2: S sixty is is a bit tight. I'm surprised that he doesn't feel comfortable in a centra because or oh sorry, Centra he says centra turbo, uh focus ST. Um let's see, Sonata. Um I don't yeah, you, know, you can't the get with an, the manual anymore. I can't no. get a manual on the Sonata. No. Yeah. Uh, Uh, Subaru. I don't know. Uh, I don't
0: know if you have legacy, but the Impreza you can still get with a manual.
2: Yeah, the Impreza might be a little small. Uh,
0: The Impreza is not as small as it was. That's what, like, the Impreza is, I think, roomier than like an S60, like we talked about. I think it's roomier than a three series. Um, you know, it has grown, and that's that's a car that is actually, you know, it has some benefits. Got all wheel drive, you can get the eyesight stuff if that's important to you um you can get it with a little bit of luxury in it too like it's it's the best impressive that's ever been uh and they've just gotten better and better so that's one to check out yeah or a forester
2: yeah um i was thinking the uh accurate tlx but you can't get that with a manual anymore just a dct or nine speed automatic Right. Uh, so I think, uh, I think the Accord might, might be your best shot at getting a manual with the kind of features and the size and roominess that you're looking for. Isn't no, there not yeah. other options.
0: I thought there was a, was it Jalatnik or car and driver? Yeah. Oh, Jesus. We forgot about the Mazda six,
2: yeah, the, the Mazda six you can get with a manual transmission. So there, there you go. And, and go. you can get it with, you know, with the grand touring, you know, with leather and, and all the, all the nice stuff in there and a manual. So
0: I feel like we, we, Took way too long to land on the Mazda six. Yes. That should have been our first thought, and I think that just I know,
2: is. I don't know what was going through my head. That's indicative of Mazda's
0: problem in the U.S. market, right there. Yeah. <laughs> Even the car guys forget.
2: <laughs> uh, um, and we got we got a couple of other questions, and we got at least one yeah, more. Yeah, let's see. There was uh, uh, somebody else. Uh, Oh, Aaron uh, mentioned uh, read that only thirty-eight percent of eighteen models offer a standard transmission option. Is there a future for the third pedal uh, where the third pedal disappears? Yes, absolutely. Um, the third the third pedal is probably not long for this world, um, except for you know maybe a few sports cars, and even there, it's it's going to become increasingly rare. Um, you know the with fuel efficiency and emission standards everywhere and it's a combination of declining demand from drivers um and with you know with the uh, emissions uh, requirements it's a lot it's actually now a lot harder to meet fuel efficiency and emission standards with a manual transmission uh because what they have to do for the certification is they actually have to um do you know run some studies with consumers you know to uh basically to gather gather data on where the the actual shift points are going to be and then they use those shift points in doing the the certification tests and so it makes it more of a challenge to uh hit their targets with a manual transmission with an automatic you know you can control all of that stuff you can control exactly when it's going to shift you know during the uh During the emissions cycle, you know, based on loads and speeds and everything. And it's just a lot easier to manage. That's why most manual transmissions or most automatics now get better fuel economy ratings um, and um, usually better performance these days. Unfortunately,
0: it's just it's sad.
2: You'll just have to find yourself an old Mazda Miata to buy like I did.
0: Yeah, they're out there. They really there. Okay.
2: All right. Next. Next question. Um, do you want to get into uh, malays?
0: Yeah, I think that, then we can. That can be it. We can we can jump into that. Oh, okay. oh wait. You know what? Actually, I have I have um, I have one more. Actually, my friend Zach. He's been shopping for a car, and he lives in DC. So he's like trying to find a plug-in or a hybrid, and he he wants what he
2: wants. And BMW seven hundred and forty e. It's both. Plug-in.
0: Yeah, I don't I don't think he has. uh, I don't think he has the dough for that, but he's asking. He'll save, like He'll save it at the pump. It's 43 miles per gallon. <laughs> so he's got a couple of questions. Well, let's go through these really quick. Okay. Um, should I be scared of a fusion hybrid reliability, assuming an eight year ownership period? Uh, well, the only thing I will say is Ford seems to be having trouble with the fusions with stuff that's not related to the hybrid system, such as the
2: head units. Uh, so, yeah, but that's I mean, you know, that's a separate issue. I mean, as far as far as right. the hybrid powertrain goes, I would not be at all concerned about right. that. Yeah. You know,
0: so the problem is the fusion, not the hybrid fusion.
2: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, they, they, you know, they, they were, you know, they've run those um, those hybrid drivetrains and escape hybrids uh, for hundreds of thousands of miles um, as New York taxi cabs uh, yeah. without having any problems with them. Um, the hybrid powertrains are fine. Uh, right. I, I would not be at all worried about the, the durability of those. Okay. You know, any any other issues on there is a separate, you know, something, that, something else entirely, but I wouldn't worry about the hybrid powertrain.
0: Right. So the hybrid itself is going to be fine. The Fusion might have problems. So, <laughs> okay. Anyway, uh, why the expletive does Toyota not add Android Auto? I don't know. I'm surprised because the new Camry is out and it should have it and it doesn't.
2: Yeah, they they have opted not to s- support either Android Auto or Apple CarPlay. They are incorporating um, Smart Device Link, which is the open source version of Ford's Sync AppLink. Uh, it was you know, originally developed by Ford. Uh, they as AppLink and they open sourced it so that um, you know it allows you to control you know uh, certain compatible apps through the the head unit um, you know on your smartphone, um, but they toyota decided that they want to control the user experience um you know they they want to have you know they want to have control of that um I, another, you know one well one, one of the other advantages with um with smart device link versus uh versus android auto or carplay is that there's more vehicle data available through that interface um so that app developers can do things um you know, when they're working with Smart Device Link, that they can't do with Android Auto or Apple CarPlay in terms of getting, uh, you know, for example, vehicle speed data, fuel economy data. You know, so they can create different kinds of apps that are supported with the the smartphone systems.
0: I, I guess, but it's just like having experience with Toyota's Entune systems. Like, get over yourselves, guys. Your experience yeah. sucks. You should well, just
2: the, <laughs> like. I mean, I, you know, granted, I haven't had a chance to to live with the new Entune system yet. Uh, but the new system that's launching on the Camry uh, is a completely new system. It's totally unrelated to the the previous system. I hope uh, so. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's redone from the ground up. Um, it's it's actually running on automotive grade Linux now. Uh, the previous system, I'm not sure what OS they were using, but it was it was actually developed uh, in conjunction with Nuance, um, and you know, it it had it had its issues. Uh, let's just leave it at that. Yeah. Um, the new system is all new. Um, and certainly looks better. Um, we'll see how well it works. Uh, once we've you know they they just did some uh, some media drives a few weeks ago. Uh, and I had didn't have not had a chance to drive the uh, the Camry. Uh, hopefully later this summer, I'll be able to get in one, and we'll see how that system works.
0: Okay, Um, and the last one: At what point does someone turn in their enthusiast driving card for picking a hybrid? Um, And I don't think you have to, especially if you're talking Camry hybrid, because the last generation, the last two generations of Camry hybrid have actually been the best Camry hybrid, and the new one is, or the best Camry to drive is has been the hybrid, and the new one is probably still that way. I really liked the Fusion hybrid as well; I thought it drove really well. So I don't think you have to turn in your enthusiast card. Um, and you can always get yourself a used
2: Miata. And, you know, even even the uh, the current generation Prius, you know, re, you know, if you disregard the way it looks, um, is not terrible to drive anymore. I mean, it's it's well, that's really true to drive.
0: I did. I did like the, the T. What is it? TNGA. I, yeah. I was shocked at how good it is. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I mean, it, it's got much better uh, driving dynamics than any previous Prius. Uh, you know, it's it's not particularly powerful. Um yeah, so if you want to if you want a more aggressive hybrid system. Uh you probably want to take a look at uh, the fusion. Um and then you know the uh the the um, Hyundai Kia hybrid system in the Sonata is actually pretty decent as well. Um and there's also the uh, the new Hyundai Ionic, which is another one uh that's worth taking a look at. Um so yeah, I mean the latest generation of hybrids are actually quite good. Um, you know and then you know depending on how much money you want to spend, you know some of the the b m w s uh are are really nice as well you know i mean we, we were talking about the seven forty earlier, but that same basic powertrain is also available in the three series and the five series as well as in the x five uh so you know there's there's quite a few options out there
0: all right, so let 's wrap up with the malays okay <laughs> uh and let me let me so it's, it's uh, which is worse to live through or better? I forget, but either either way, which is worse to live through: the Malay's era or the coming autonomous overlord era?
2: You know, it's the answer to that is not entirely obvious. You know, in part because we haven't lived through the autonomous era yet, and you know we don't know quite how it's going to play out. Um, you know, certainly in the Malay's era. Um, you know, in the, in the eighties. I mean, I, I grew up, you know, I got my driver's license in the, in the early eighties. Um, and uh, so I was, you know, kind of on the, the tail end of the, the malaise era and it was, you know, the cars then were pretty bad, uh, but I mean, they were pretty bad in, in, they were
0: all bad. Guys. Like, yeah, they, like it, what I, what I like about the Malays era was uh, that for all the complaining there was a lot of effort. Uh, And I say this as somebody who only was around, like I was born in 77. So I, I didn't experience it with any kind of like sort of awareness. Uh, But those cars were around when I was a kid as well. Um, And while they had their troubles, there was at least an effort to uh, meet these, these mandates. Um, You know, uh, we've seen recently they're trying to disassemble the EPA. I mean, during the malaise era, they, instated the epa nixon gave us the epa right so like we started making progressive progress through the Malays era um
2: so yeah part, part of the reason that the cars were the way they were is that engineers were struggling with you know how to how to make them work reliably you know with this brand new technology they were trying to implement you know to try to to try to meet these new emissions and fuel economy standards and so you know, yes, engines were underpowered, and they often didn't run very well. Um, you know, you, you know, they were a pain in the ass to work on. You know, if you ever looked under the hood of some of those early eighties cars or late seven late seventies cars and saw the rat's nest of vacuum tubes yeah. or vacuum lines, you know, vacuum hoses running everywhere. Uh, I mean, it was just a nightmare. But and,
0: you know, like they. They were doing the best of what they had. Well the, oh, absolutely. I, I think, you know, and you, you probably from an engineer's perspective, you can probably speak to this even even more with more authority. Uh, the world changed on those guys really, really quickly.
2: Um, uh, it, I mean, it was, you know, it was almost a, an overnight kind of thing where yeah. know, all these standards were imposed on them and yeah. they had to figure out, they had to figure, you know, create the technologies to be able to, uh, to meet those standards, you know, and then start to improve the cars again. Right.
0: In the middle of product cycles,
2: right, and so it it was it was a real challenge, um, you know. And at that time, you know, we were, you know, they were just starting to use, you know, we had the very earliest generations of microprocessors, right, and they were just starting to figure out how to do electronically controlled systems, um, and you know, do the software for these things and how to implement all this stuff and try to get the cost down and get the reliability up. And once they did that. You know, like, you know, by the mid 80s, they had started to get a handle on all of that. And that's when we started to see things really take off again. You know, you had the combination of, you know, the first round of cafe requirements plateaued, you know, in the the latter part of the 80s. So they didn't have to keep improving fuel economy. Um, But, you know, the technology, they had gotten sorted out. And so that's when we started to get into this sort of golden age that is still going on now. Um, you know where they were able to use the electronics to make you know to increase the power increase the the specific fuel cons- or improve the specific fuel consumption of engines so that they were even though they they were maintaining um, average fuel economy at about the same level for about 20 years you know over that same period you know they were they more than doubled the average output of engines and yeah. made them more reliable and and um, smoother running and, and and everything about them was, at least from a from a quantitative from any kind of quantitative measure, was vastly improved. Um, you know, as as we talked about last week, you know, from a from a driver's car perspective, in some ways it you know it 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 has caused a decline in recent years because you know quantitatively the cars have gotten better, uh, but realistically we can't we're, we're at the point now where we can't really use those improvements effectively anymore uh, you know so you know what in terms of as we move into this era of automated vehicles you know um it, i think it might actually be better in some respects you know for those of us that want to keep old cars running you know we'll have the opportunity to you know we'll have some cars you know from the you know from the late 80s you know through the early part of this century you know, that are some really cool cars that, you know, some, some, they did some really great stuff with those vehicles and, you know, we'll be able to keep tweaking those and, and keep them running and, and have a lot of fun with those cars, you know, at least hopefully at least through my lifetime and hopefully well beyond that for, for younger enthusiasts.
0: Yeah. I mean, so I think that uh, we can look at this coming period with sort of just as much trepidation as people did about the Malays, um, And we joke about it now, right? The Malays era, but like, everything was fine until 1972 and then it was a completely different world. And then we got whacked again in 1979. Uh um, And in between there was a recession and (laughs) and, you you know, like it took a while for the, you know, Moore's law to sort of catch on and the technology to just get that critical mass of being uh, as inexpensive and capable as it became in the eighties. So use that as a model, right? Like this stuff right now, this autonomy and all of that is, it's expensive and it's in its infancy and it doesn't work great all the time and give it, give it another 10 years.
2: You know, it's going to be, you know, a lot of years before that stuff dominates anyway. You know, you're going to have plenty of time to, to figure all this out and, and, you know, drive and enjoy the cars we have today.
0: Yeah. So I think that the malaise was probably worse uh, than the autonomy era until they take our cars away right <laughs> and then when they then decide that human
2: driven cars are absolutely illegal then we'll be we'll be yeah. out of luck but
0: then you will, then you will wish for the malaise you will wish for a velare with you'll the roadrunner package
2: you'll you'll you'll, <laughs> you'll wish for a 105 horsepower v8 mustang correct
0: <laughs> <laughs> and on that cheery note i think we should wrap it up this week
2: absolutely we'll see you all right. next week
0: all right thanks
2: bye